Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When was the last time you found yourself in a fancy Manhattan restaurant talking about the intimate details of your sex life over lunch with friends? Never, right? When my guest Nikki Glazer started developing her show Not Safe, she thought there might be a better way for women to talk about sex on TV. What we were trying to avoid was the sex show with a bunch of women, like, sipping wine, being like, girl, naughty, you know, like a bunch of Samanthas or whatever. I didn't want it to be that, and I didn't want people to be able to write it off as like, oh, it's just too female or whatever. To be fair, it is pretty naughty. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Nikki Glazer about her show, Not Safe. It's a comedy show. She wants you to laugh, but she also kind of wants to liberate you. We want people to learn something from the show and to take away that you shouldn't be ashamed about what you're into unless it, like, you know, hurts people. She makes the show with her boyfriend, and she'll tell me about why she is so compelled to reveal intimate details of her life that literally in the middle of them making the show, she revealed so much that he dumped her. Then later, I'll talk to writer and comedian Dave Holmes, about what it was like growing up gay and Catholic in the 80s in the Midwest. It helped that he was able to adapt to just about any situation that was thrown at him, which turns out to be a pretty useful trait for a guy who went on to be a TV host. Like, having it drummed into me so much that that was my job as a human being actually gave me, like, my superpower. (laughs) You know what I mean? It It made me able to do the things that I was able to do. And I'll tell you how I went from standard issue Olympic skeptic to sobbing in the stands in a city in a foreign country. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. When we're uncomfortable about something, we turn to humor. And there isn't anything that makes us more uncomfortable than sex. It's secret and it's gross And it's also our number one biological imperative. Nobody knows all that as well as Nikki Glaser. She's a stand-up comic. She co-hosted Nikki and Sarah Live on MTV. She's often appeared on Inside Amy Schumer. And she's got a new show on Comedy Central called Not Safe. It bravely ventures into the world of sex. It's frank, a little scary, and very funny. Think Nikki connecting her parents to a lie detector and then asking them, exactly what sex acts they've done together. Here is Nikki on Not Safe talking about how to deal with the first time that you find out how many partners your new significant other has had. And before we get into that clip, um, obviously Nikki's show is about sex, so uh, be aware that's coming. Uh, That's going to be the next 20 minutes or so, so if uh, you or somebody listening shouldn't be listening to that or would prefer not to, uh, now's your big chance to opt out. Let's take a listen to Nikki on Not Safe. Any number they say feels wrong, and it's too easy for you to get in your head about it. Like, 32? Damn, that's half a school bus. Four? That's a Jamaican bobsled team. 21? That's all the Duggars. Including the creepy one. Look, I get it. Deep down, we all want that new person we're dating to be like a virgin but like a very experienced virgin, you know? Like someone who chalks up amazing like beginner's luck. (laughs) When you pitched this show to Comedy Central, what was the meeting like? It was really fun, actually, because I pitched it with my boyfriend and uh, we had really, you know, practiced our pitch and worked so hard on it. And then in the end, he was like, just go in there and... This show is going to be about you, so just be the, he calls me Glaze. He's like, be the Glaze I know that's just like, just glaze it out. And so I was just like, so I went in there. He was like, you know, that's what they want from you. That's why they they like you. That's why they want to do a show with you is because of just who you are naturally. So just play it up. So I just went in there, and um, I, I knew what I was going to say, and we had a whole presentation, and I just... uh Talking about sex is very easy for me, and I, I kind of like the uncomfortability it creates in the room. 
but they loved it. I mean, there were three executives there. There was like one, two, and four at, at Comedy Central. <laughs> <laughs> three was like out of town or something. And uh, yeah, they ate it up. They loved it. Um, did you have to have a meeting with your boyfriend who you created the show with in order to decide like how deep are we going to go in this pitch? Yeah, we um, we went through a lot during that pitch, actually, because <laughs> we we a lot of things came up from his past relationships that he didn't tell me about because we were just like swapping stories. And I was like, I thought you never said I love you to that girl because he hadn't said I love you to me at this point. And I was like, and he was like, no, I, I did. And I like started. Cr- this is the night before the pitch. I started crying and I was just like, <laughs> why can't you say it to me then? And he was like. He was like, please. And I go, let me just like, I, it was like three in the morning. I'd gotten in really late and we were just staying up all night to like cram for it. And he was like, he like got down on one knee and was like, I mean, not to propose, but he was just like, please look at me and in my hand. I'm holding my face in my hand. Just like, we just let me have a minute and then I'll get back to work. And uh, he was like, please, please look at me. And I go, if you say I love you now, I'm going to kill you. This is not... And he was like, I've been meaning to tell you. I just wanted to come up with a great way, and now it's too late. And uh, and so then we, we he said, I love you during our uh, during our pitch practice. Nikki, that's such a beautiful story. Yeah, it was good. It was it was nice. It's it's a good memory for me because it it was sincere and it was um and yeah we've been through a lot with the, the making of this show. It's been crazy. <laughs> it's yeah we've broken up at one point and continued to make it together. Got back together, and we're stronger than ever now. It's like our child. I'm like, oh, we have to make this work for the child. How far into the process were you when you broke up? Ugh. So the pilot was picked up, and we were beginning. We had hired a showrunner, and then we were beginning to work on the show before we were we were in New York at the time, Chris and I, my boyfriend. But then um, we were Skyping all the time with the showrunner we had hired in L.A., and we were about we were moving to L.A., to work on the pilot and like moving there within like a month. And so we were just on Skype every day, just like, and we were ca- kind of kept it quiet because we didn't want it to be a thing. And so we would be in a Skype meeting with like our showrunner and him and I, and I would just try to dress up as cute as possible to be like, cause he, he broke up with me for good reasons because I have a loud mouth and I, I had a podcast where I, I, I talked poorly of him because I'm scared of abandonment, so when I get mad at my boyfriend, I don't, like, confront him. I just take it on stage or, like, I'm so scared that I'm just going to be like, I don't like when you do this. And he'll be like, well, I do that, so we shouldn't be together. And then I won't have an option. So You understand that there's a third path there. Which is? Well, if you're scared of abandonment, uh, granted that you don't necessarily have to confront him directly. Mm Mm-hmm. But you don't have to take it to the public. You know, it's <laughs> like you don't so, have to issue a referendum. I know it's, but it is so difficult for me when ha- there's a microphone in front of my face and there's pressure to be entertaining to share things that are on the forefront of my mind that are that I'm most passionate about. And I would leave his house after we got into a fight or what he he didn't even know it was a fight, but I'm just like <laughs> seething, angry, and I leave just like bye, and then I go to this podcast and would just. Let it all out. Not being like, oh, he's not going to listen to it, but just not even realizing what I was doing, honestly. Because when we made the, when we were starting to make the show, he was like, I want to listen to your podcast to like see, you know, what you're like when you're talking about relationships and stuff, because that was the subject of my podcast. And so I sent him the podcast. I was like, yeah, listen. Like, I didn't even think about what I had said. And he, he called me after listening to it. Like, he listened to every episode and like, oh, a night. And he wrote me the next day, like, I don't even know you. Like, it was bad. It was really bad. I And then I, I couldn't even hear the things that I had said. Like, he said back some of the things, and I'm like, what? I said that? Like, it was bad. It was bad. But it definitely made me – I shouldn't even be talking about it now. No, it's fine. But uh, <laughs> it made me more um, aware and um, empathetic to people that I talk about. On Like, uh, before I would just talk about my family, whatever. Like, if you hurt me, you deserve to be – publicly shamed or whatever and um and there's still a little bit of that in me because, but <laughs> but she said with a smile yeah but like i did not mean to hurt him i, I mean obviously i did not I, it was devastating and so we we were continuing to make this show together because i wanted to make the show with him but it was just like okay we just have to do this and and then we finally got back together before we moved to L.A. But, like, the day we moved to L.A., we got back together. But it was it was rough. It was really rough. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Nikki Glaser about her show, Not Safe. She says the way we were talking about sex on TV was all wrong. One of the things that you did on uh, an episode of the show a couple of weeks ago was go to a Trump rally, in Donald Trump rally in yeah. San Diego, and ask people, confront people and ask them, you asked them a couple of questions first, but the, the main thing that was going on was you asking <laughs> if they would perform sex acts on Donald Trump in certain, first overall, and then in specific circumstances. Yes. And to ensure his victory or or to get rid of ISIS. Like I, I made it like seem like ISIS was a person because I just wanted to be as dumb as they were. So I was like, if ISIS like just died and uh, would you do this? And um, these are these people, terrifying. These are just right. So these are just people that are going to see their favorite presidential candidate. But they're aggressive in line. But. <laughs> you you are the one with the television show and the camera and the microphone. Yes. Um, and you are the one who's a professional performer who's... <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> you know, but you've, yes. you know, you've spent, uh, you've spent probably 10 years on stand-up stages yeah. dealing with people who talk back to you. Mm-hmm. And so you know how to do exactly that. Right. And so you have a lot of arrows in your quiver, so to speak, here. Yeah. So... Do you feel comfortable going out and doing something like that to just people on the street? I don't. It's incredibly uncomfortable. It helps when they're Trump supporters to to be a little bit mean back to them and and to to you know to make fun of them. I don't like making people feel bad. So the Trump thing was really difficult for me, but the fact that it was such a ridiculous question they should have just walked away from me. And the fact that they would still talk to me about it and actually have a real answer was just hilarious. And um, and they knew that I was kind of being silly. A lot of them, like, were in on the joke. But um, there's something about a, a Trump supporter that I don't mind making them look as dumb as they are. Did you think of your show in the context of other comedy shows that are about sex and the extent to which those other comedy shows that are about sex are almost always reflective of a straight dude's perspective? Yeah. I mean, I w- there was like recently Brody Jenner had a show about sex and I was like, yeah, have fun with that. And then uh, I-, I couldn't – like Dan Savage's sex podcast is like my favorite thing. He like inspired me to – want to help in any way I can to make pe- people feel less ashamed. But, you know, what we were trying to avoid was the sex show with a bunch of women, like, sipping wine, being like, girl, naughty, you know, like a bunch of Samanthas or whatever. I didn't want it to be that, and I didn't want people to be able to write it off as, like, oh, it's just too female or whatever. So there was something in me that was, like, trying to do something different than anything I'd seen. But it's hard because everything's been done. But I just, in the bottom line, I just wanted to take what I, it's the thing I'm most interested in. So I was like, okay, this is perfect. This is the kind of show for me to have because I'll just be myself. I want to play a clip from my guest Nikki Glazer's show, Not Safe, on Comedy Central. And Dan Savage is on the show. Uh, and <laughs> the setup for this is... Uh, that you and Dan are uh, giving advice to a younger Nikki. Yes. This first one is from me at eight. Aw. So cute. Hey. Last weekend we went to a barbecue at my Uncle Michael's house. Michael's acting strange. His face was all red and he kept playing Bonnie Raitt really loud. Then he said, hey, Nikki, want to know what I do with my friend Douglas? I kiss him all over. But shh, I'm not allowed to tell Grandpa. Why did he say that? He said it because your grandfather is and your uncle has boundary issues. There are worse uncles with worse boundary issues, like uncles who kiss their nieces all over. That would be worse. But your whole family is kind of a mess, and you're going to need to be careful in there. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome. Are there... (laughs) When you made a list of 
things. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure at some point, whether it was after you'd hired a showrunner or just when you were preparing to go into that pitch meeting, you knew that they were going to say, all right, this is a question that they ask in pitch meetings, as I understand it. They say, all right, what happens in episode 12 or episode oh, right. 42, right? They, they try and figure out how is this repeatable. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that at some point, you and uh, your boyfriend, with whom you co-created the show, just made a list of stuff. Were there things on the list of stuff that you were scared to put on the list, maybe even because they were a good idea? Things constantly come up that I am very uncomfortable. Like, I've done a lot of things that I didn't want to do initially when the idea first came up. Um, I spent 24 hours in a strip club. I don't like strip clubs. I think they're gross and uh, depressing. And guess what? It was both of those things. <laughs> but... um. Uh, Pretty much when it comes to my personal life, I'll share just about anything. I mean, there's nothing that was on that list that was like, I can't go there. There comes a point, though, that I go, I don't want to do – I don't want to share these stories anymore. I'm not that important. Like, I don't – I don't want the show to be about my sex life or lack thereof or whatever's going on at the time. Like, I I just – but – the one thing that came up that I was like, I don't want to do it, is we want to, you know, keep using this lie detector guy who's hilarious. And the lie detector is a, has been a funny bit for us. And we're pitching other ideas. And they were like, what if we bring in uh, your boyfriend? Chris Convy is my boyfriend. What if we bring in his family and they will, like, will ask them if they really like you and stuff? And I'm like, uh, I don't want to know that. <laughs> I, I know that will be great television. It truly will. But I want to be able to like see these people again and 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 I just that to me sounds awful and my boyfriend was all game for it and so his brother's on works on our show too he was like this would be great and I was like I just don't want to I don't think I'm going to get answers that I like <laughs> because you know I'm a pretty dirty dirty girl and uh and his family's <laughs> like catholic <laughs> and so it went I, they put up with me and they love me but it's like i'm sure i'd get answers like what well, first we thought you know and i don't want to know any of that i don't want to know what people think about me if you don't know want to know what people think about you i don't read comments <laughs> but i mean you you're a comedian you go yeah. on stage every night or five nights a week or whatever yeah. to do comedy uh-huh that's like the ultimate referendum on what people think about you. Yeah, but I have control of that because they – if they don't it, – and it, it hurts when they don't like me. But then I can say they just didn't like my jokes or they didn't like me in that – I have audiences where I'm like, wow, they hated me. I had one just the other night where I was like, no one in that audience liked me. And for some reason, I have – because I've been doing it so long, I can get over that. But the people in my personal life I, or – I don't know. I, I guess because they're not shouting insults at me directly and I'm not getting feedback. Like if they tweet me after the show like, I didn't appreciate this, which has never really happened with a live show. But the only way people can get to me with their nasty comments is if they would say them to me to my face, which no one does because there's the Internet. Or they tweeted at me, and which I just block them, or YouTube comments, and I don't read any comments on anything ever. And that's so I protect myself because it would get me down, really down. What was it like for you when you hosted a show on MTV, the network that is probably, you know, I mean, I guess maybe certain parts of E, but like probably the most looks obsessed. Yeah. Video outlet. (laughs) Yeah. Non-pornographic video outlet in the world. It was... It was, they dressed me like a Barbie doll. So it was, I felt like, I think they played into that for me where I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm gorgeous. Like I felt like I was like, so I looked, I always had to wear these tiny little skirts and I was always uncomfortable, always. Spanx and everything. But, um, and I look back and I'm like, I can't even post any videos from this because people go like, what happened to you? Like, because it just wasn't me. So I think that it wasn't just a matter of being on MTV. It was a matter of me feeling like it was my first TV show. This is how the world's going to see me. And it is important for me to be beautiful. And I've been in enough therapy since that show that I'm like, I'm funny. And this is like the best thing about being a woman in Hollywood who has uh, – I'm a comedian. So it's 
I'll always have a role, which is on the stage. And I'll always, Joan Rivers, like, I'll always be funny. That's not going to fade. But so I've embraced that more and realized, like, I don't need to look pretty to be funny. It doesn't come into play. So I've since let that go since MTV. It was a lot of work. You, like, the fact that we have to be in hair and makeup for an hour and a half when we're supposed to be writing jokes and working on the show, it makes our show suffer as opposed to a, ma- a man who doesn't have to do anything. He just gets dressed. And we have to be in hair and makeup for an hour and a half and then get dressed. It's, it's, sometimes I do At Midnight, the show on Comedy Central, and you get the material to prepare for the show three hours before. But then you're in hair and makeup for an hour while all the guys are in their rooms writing jokes. So it's just like there, it, it it really aggravates me. So I I get I get mad when there's some expectation for me to look pretty when when I'm on set and they come and they're like fixing my hair. It's like you have flyaways. I'm like, cause I'm a person. Who cares? Is that really going to? Uh, that's the thing that gets me is when um when looks play any part in in the show we're making now. It's really been freeing to be like I don't care, and I really don't. Like I, I know I'm just rambling right now, but one, the first, we were just about to start shooting the show. It was like our first episode and we were rehearsing for it. And one of the lighting guys was like, Hey, um, you wear a lot of sleeveless things. And I just want to let you know your arm fat, like jiggles when you like talk. And during MTV days, that would have demolished my self-esteem. I would have not been able to go on, but now I just was like. He, I go, okay. And he goes, I just thought it's my job to tell you. And I go, is it? And he's gone now because it's just like, and I wear sleeveless stuff all the time and I wave freely. I don't care because <laughs> it doesn't affect the comedy of anything. It makes things funnier. Uh, but yeah, that's, I've changed a lot since MTV. I'll continue my conversation with Nikki Glaser after a break. We'll talk about why she can't have fun at pools anymore, which, I mean, yeah, that's awful. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org. And NPR. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Blink, helping homeowners and renters keep an eye on what's happening at home while they're away. Blink's battery-powered high-definition video cameras use motion sensors to deliver instant video alerts right to your smartphone or check in anytime with Live View. Cameras can be placed almost anywhere in your home and installation super easy, too. Learn more at BlinkForHome.com. Get 10% off your order with the promo code Blink NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. This week's a great time to check out Planet Money, which I call Planet Monet. The team over there has gone into the oil business. Over the next two weeks, Planet Money's buying crude oil straight from the source and following it all the way to your gas tank. In classic Planet Money style, they're demystifying the ordinary systems of our economy with humor. What happens when you try to pay cash for 100 barrels of oil? Or beg a refinery to drop in a shampoo bottle of crude you snuck in. Find out on Planet Money this week and next on NPR One. Find NPR ONE on your app store. I'm Allegra Ringo. And I'm Renee Colbert. And we host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog? Renee, can I tell you about a dog I met this week? Uh, I wish that you would. In turn, though, can I tell you about a dog hero? May I tell you about a dog breed in a segment I like to call Mutt Minute? (laughs) I would love that. Could we maybe talk about some dog tech? Could we have some cool guests on, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Nicole Byer, and Ann Wheaton? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. You're on board. What do you say we uh, we do all of this and put it into a podcast? Yeah, okay. You think? All right. Uh, should we call it like I don't know? Can I pet your dog? Sure. All right. Uh, what do you What do you say we put it on every Tuesday on Maximum Fun or on iTunes? Sounds good to me. <laughs> Meeting's over. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Nikki Glazer. She's the host and co-creator of the Comedy Central show Not Safe. Later, I'll be talking with writer and comedian Dave Holmes about his new memoir, Party of One. Are there times doing the show that you have felt physically uncomfortable? I mean, among other things, you went to a foot fetish meetup Mm -hmm. with no shoes on or socks. That was was weird, but... I loved. I I liked that one because I I love having my feet rubbed. So that was just like they just. But then the guy got aroused while he was doing it, so that was weird. But um, I knew it was like a really good closer to our piece. So I was like, yes, I'm glad it happened. Um, one thing that we did that was so uncomfortable. 
Uh, oh, one time we were doing this piece about um, asking people if they done. They were about to get married. We were asking these engaged couples if they'd done everything sexually that they wanted to do, and they're ready to just lock it down. And so we were asking this one couple all these things, and the guy kept saying, like, "Oh yeah, I've done that. I've done that." And his wife is like, "You have with who?" And they literally got into like a fight, and you could tell it was going to be a rough ride home. And afterwards, I had to talk to her like, listen, I can tell from his answers, like, he's done with that stuff. Like, he's with you now. And she was like, you think? Like, she really – I felt the need to jump in and, like, save save that. It was really uh, – that was a weird moment. And that there's been a couple weird moments talking to couples on the street when you ask them about their relationship. Usually one of them says something that the other is just like, what? Like, <laughs> stuff comes out. Which I kind of love, but I don't. I don't want to ruin anyone's relationship. Yeah, I mean, do you feel weird about pulling on these strings for people, or do you get a kick out of it, or both? I don't get a kick out of it in the moment, but I think it's important because we should be talking about these things. And I think I'm not just doing it. I guess I'm. I am doing it for entertainment's sake, but um, I don't like uncomfortable things. I don't like prank shows. I don't like doing anything undercover. I don't like, I hate all that stuff, but people like it. And sometimes we have come up with good ideas to like talk to people about this thing. And I'm like, guys, I don't want to. And then I get out there and I, I conquer my fear of like, because those are some of my favorite things to watch is like people making other people uncomfortable. And now I'm getting good at it, I guess. <laughs> it's not, it's not something I'm proud of. It is not. I don't like doing it, but it's sometimes for the sake of the show, I have to. You said that you don't want to hear what other people think about you. Yeah. Didn't you do am I misremembering that you did a bit where you hooked people you knew up to the lie detector and asked if they'd ever thought about uh having intercourse with me. Yes. <laughs> Male friends of mine. That to me wasn't like do you think I'm funny? Do you think I'm pretty? I mean, I in a way I guess that's do you think I'm pretty, but Honestly, I knew they're men, and so I knew that the, like, come on. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm like, I just feel like. Yeah, that's the, not unfair. It's, 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 it's just the way they, like, it didn't make me, a lot of the answers were, in fact, like, yeah, but I want to have sex with everything. And I'd be like, oh, okay, thanks for that. You didn't need to add that, you know? <laughs> you could have just said yes. Um, so if Wait, I Wait, is that better or worse? Is, would it be better if they just said, like, they're just trying to be like, but I, it's, I'm not creepy. Well, I want them to, like, at first you just want, like, yeah, you're, like, the hottest thing. I, I don't know. But I, that I, would be weird. They're your friend. I know, but it just, it's still, even if it's weird, like, you just want to be desirable. Well, at least I do. I have I have, I have so many hang-ups about just, like, I want to be uh, accepted as, like, your desi- your sexually desirable. Like, there's something about, like, I'm getting into, like, my therapy and stuff, but, like, I grew up in a household that held beauty to a very high standard, and I wasn't a beautiful child. And and so I think now it's uh, th- this constant approval-seeking is something that um, I'm trying to avoid now because it, I will never get what I want. It'll never be enough. And so I'm just trying to that, – that is a reason I think I try to avoid comments. I don't want to read any mean things or even the good things because I'm like it's not good enough. So that's, that, that is a thing. So I think that, that kind of plays into that answer of like, okay, good. They want to have sex with me even though they're my, my friends. Like that's somehow better than just not – Let's hear some more from Nikki Glazer's show, Not Safe, on Comedy Central. So this is Nikki talking about uh, her personal decision to switch uh, from bikinis when swimming to one pieces. It's spring break! And here's a quick question. Ladies, when was the last time you had fun in a swimming pool? Oh, that's right. You never do. Because you're wearing this. I mean, how can we possibly enjoy ourselves when the only thing covering our boobs are two small triangles that look like they've been pulled from a quesadilla? <laughs> Congratulations, society. You tricked us into wearing our bras and underwear in public. Good job. God, I fell for this for years. And then last year, I bought a one-piece, and it was like I was reborn. Sure, I was invisible to men, but I was happy. Thanks to my one piece, I was diving and flipping and pretending I was a mermaid again. And just like a mermaid, no one was going to see me. 
<laughs> that I stand behind that one. <laughs> I really like am angry that I can't have fun in pools anymore. It was like my life as a child. <laughs> and if I want to look like hot swimming, even in one pieces now, they're they barely cover they they'll figure they figured out a way to make one pieces sexy and they're falling off. It sucks. You got to hit up like Land's End or something. Yeah, I really. That's where the reliable, speedo, reliable clothing yeah, comes you're from. Right. You're right. <laughs> got a lifetime guarantee. <laughs> yeah. You can return it to any that's Sears. That's true. It's, if you're worried that it's too sexy, just bring it back to Sears. They will. They'll fix it. <laughs> what did we do? This was sexy. Bring it back to the Craftsman Tools <laughs> Department. Bob Velo will be there to help. <laughs> Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Nikki Glazer about her show, Not Safe. One more warning. Uh, Nikki and I talk a little bit about the subject of sexual assault in the next segment. So if you have a sensitivity to that subject or you've got kids around who you might not want to hear us talking about that, uh, you might want to give us uh, 10 minutes or so. Do you feel like the well of difficult and uncomfortable situations you can and conversations that you can put yourself into and or create is bottomless? Uh, probably. But, you know, for me it is not because I, I'm going to get to a point where it's like I have a little bit more respect for myself than to do that. <laughs> you know, like right now I'm just trying to be funny and we follow Tosh.0. I'm trying to get those fans to be like, I like your show. I trust you to be funny. And then I can, like the, the episode we're airing um, coming up, I I talk about college uh, campus rape and uh, and all the uh, the athletes and schools trying to cover it up and we really dig into it and I interviewed this woman Brenda Tracy who was gang raped when she was in college it's like it's a serious episode and we're finally able to do that I mean our first my boyfriend and I always said like we want we want to get these Tosh audience we want to get the Tosh audience and win them over with being like oh okay she's funny and then we're going to be like hey stop raping everyone like that's our th- <laughs> not that every Tosh fan rapes someone but like do you know what I'm <laughs> statistically it is no um no but that's like we want to we want people to learn something from the show and to take away first of all that you shouldn't be ashamed about what you're into unless it like you know hurts people and um which being gay hurts me just kidding <laughs> um but like we need to talk about consent and stuff because we can talk about rape on the news and stuff, but they don't get into the nitty gritty stuff. And we want to do that. We want to expose like what it's it's really about. One one pitch that someone had was that we I take a roofie and we just see what happens, like what that looks like. And I was like, maybe we give it to a guy. Like maybe we do that. Um, so that was an interesting one to me because I'm like, I don't know that I even know what what it the the effects look like and that would be interesting to see like oh if you see this happening that person has been drugged they're not just like so drunk so i think that might be helpful to see and we'll let them know where they can get them and no. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear well nikki glazer thank you so much for uh oh taking the gosh. time to be on bullseye well thank you for having me nikki glazer's i regret everything i said nikki glazer's uh <laughs> show on comedy central <laughs> is called Not Safe. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Sometime in like the mid to late 1990s, my dad's great aunt died. And he used the inheritance to do two things. Number one, he bought a secondhand Honda Accord station wagon. Uh, This station wagon had a tape deck that you could skip songs with, which at the time was a really big deal. He also got our family a color TV. We actually literally at that point did not have a color TV. Uh, And he got us cable. And I started watching MTV. The main thing going on at MTV at the time was the wannabe a VJ contest. They ran this thing over and over and over. And the winner was a fascinating weirdo named Jesse Camp. The runner-up was a totally normal guy named Dave Holmes. Camp was completely incompetent. Holmes was the opposite. And so when he lost, Holmes collected enough business cards to get some more auditions and meetings. And within a few months, he managed to get back on the air, too. He wasn't the news guy. He wasn't the handsome guy. He wasn't the weird guy. He wasn't the guy with the shaved head who knew all the music facts. He was the other guy a hero of competency in slightly baggy trousers and a color-blocked sweater. 
In the last 20 years, Holmes has hosted every kind of TV show. He was a regular on Reno 911, and he's become quite a writer. He's with Esquire now. His new memoir, Party of One, is about how he grew up, came out, and made something of himself. And also, yes, of course, there is a part in there where he says what Jesse Camp was really like. Dave is also host of Maximum Fun's comedy quiz podcast, International Waters. Dave Holmes, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much for having me. That was lovely listening to that. Oh, well, you've made a big impact on my life, well, Dave. Well, thanks. Thanks. That's very nice to hear. Uh, we go way back, you and I. Yes, that's true. We do. Yeah. Um, well, much further than you knew when we met each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which we did do uh, when our comedy groups played together in San Francisco. Wow, yeah. Remember that? That was a long time ago. That was probably 03. Wow. Something like that. Your college comedy group. Yeah. My grown-up comedy group. Yeah. At the San Francisco uh, Com- Improv Festival. Yeah, both dancing with the with that heady mix of success and not success sure. that is playing at a comedy festival together. Oh, but it's a gas, isn't it? It's fun. And you guys were very funny. Dave, um I was looking at uh I was looking at your name on the internet. Mhm. And there okay. was an interview that you did I'm Based on the design of this website, I'm going to guess 2002. Okay. With a guy holding a video camera who found you in coach on an airplane. Ah, uh, yeah. I have faint memories of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, he was thrilled to see you and right. had nothing but complimentary things to say about your time hosting Say What Karaoke sure. on MTV. That's nice. Um, and you described... People asking you about Jesse Camp mm-hmm. in the exact same way that I've heard you describe people asking you about Jesse Camp for lo these past 13 years that we've known mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. What a strange thing that it is, is a strange Dave. Thing. It is a strange thing. But, but you know, honestly, I, you know, it, it, initially it annoyed me. For the first six months, I was like, when is this going to stop? Right. But then it didn't stop. But, but I, yeah, it, it definitely was a thing where I was like, okay, I'm, re- I'm ready to stop being asked about that and like start doing my job and right. maybe get asked about that. Uh, and that never happened. And it won't ever happen. And now it's like, it's okay. Because, you know, it, if people come at me with that, that means they watched and they remembered, you know, and it left some sort of an impact on them or, or whatever. And that's, you know, it, is it my proudest moment? It is not my proudest moment. But, I don't I don't care, you know? Like it's it's actually kind of good to kind of keep you in check. Well, in some ways, the fact that you are indelibly associated with this weird pop cultural moment which is that Jesse Camp a, a 6 foot 5 inch wayfish mm-hmm. guy from the rock scene of 4 years previous yeah. who seemed high all the time right. and got put on television by teenagers voting, possibly as a joke, hard to tell. Well, I mean, listen, that's but, who you vote for on right, a show like that, right? right I mean, you, exactly. you, want, you want chaos. Yes. You know what I mean? You don't, you don't want, like, it, it's, it's fine. But what I was going to say is, I think that there is something good about the fact that this weird pop cultural moment that you are indelibly associated with was also a turning point in your life. Like, if it was not an important moment in your life, it would be a very different thing. If, right. If the weight of those two things did not match up. Right. Yeah, you know, the thing is, I, I had a regular job. I was I was an advertising guy, and, and I just sort of I blew it off to go and audition. And, and it was it, – everything that happened was so utterly strange that I don't I don't think I even reacted to it for, like, four more years. You know what I mean? It was just so utterly, utterly bizarre everything that was happening, that it was like, I think I was just operating in shock. And you were not, I mean, it's not like you had a regular job and you were going to television auditions. Mm -mm. You were a normal human being who heard about this thing in the real way that you would imagine someone hearing about it. Mm -hmm. Like, and and this happened to you. Yes, it did. The thing that impresses me the most about it, and it's something that you describe in the book, is that somehow... You had the presence of mind while you were in a live television contest uh-huh. uh, to introduce yourself to people and get their business card. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was whatever I was, 26 or 27. Like, I, you know, I had been at it long enough to know a good opportunity when I saw it. 
it seemed like, as speaking as someone who's known you for a long time, it seemed like a kind of classic Dave Holmes move, which oh, yeah. was you are the kind of person for whom ingratiating yourself socially is a default move. Right. Um, and it seems to me, especially having read your book, like in some ways it's also a defensive move, that it's about you know, growing up in a Catholic family in mm-hmm. St. Louis and being gay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I've always, when you grow up different, and especially if you grow up gay and religious in any way, uh, or Midwestern or or all of those things, um, it creates a constant nervousness. You know what I mean? Like a, a sort of a, just a churning inside that like you can either go crazy or you can use it as your engine. You know what I mean? Like I, I grew up feeling very strongly that I needed to prove my my worth in this world. Like I needed to succeed. And it's it's because I grew up thinking there was something wrong with me. You know, I, I worry that kids today, I worry about kids today for a variety of reasons. But I, uh, but you know, the the different ones I think are going to grow up feeling proud of themselves, and that's great. But where, where's your drive to do more? Then you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So you're worried that children don't have enough shame and self hatred. I kind of am. It can be good for you. It can be really good for you. I mean, if you if you see it for what it is, or you know, before it before it destroys you, and, and you let it actually motivate you, then yeah, it actually can be a good thing. You describe in your book being a teenager, and the first time that you met gay kids who seemed almost comfortable to be gay kids. Yeah, C- can you describe that to me? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple. There were, there were a couple in my high school. There was one in in like a RT summer kids program that I that I. Uh, enrolled in and and it was you know when you, when you're like struggling with your identity and your sexuality and, and all that kind of thing or certainly when I was uh, you see people like that and it's this weird mixture of like sh- envy but also sort of pity and shame um, like they're kind of heroic in a way but also like you you want to limit your exposure to them because you don't want to be tainted um, it's uh, it's a, it's a it's a scary thing you know it, like it's it's freeing. And it's great to meet people who are like you want to be, but it's also terrifying. Did you feel like you wanted to be like them? Uh, I don't know that I necessarily wanted to be like them, but I, I wanted to be free. You know, I wanted to not worry so much about how it was coming off or what people were thinking of me or, or anything like that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Dave Holmes. If you were going to pick one pair of people, one pair of people to give you advice on coming out, who would it be? That's exactly who Dave Holmes heard from. We'll hear who it was after a break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, it's Robert and Stacy from the Planet Money team. You know, a lot of places report on the oil business. But we got into the oil business. We bought 100 barrels of crude oil in Kansas. We shipped it, we refined it, and we got it to your gas tank. Check it out on the next few episodes of Planet Money. You can find us on iTunes or NPR One. Attention, Europe. This fall, Maximum Fun is bringing a bunch of your favorite podcasters to London. Catch Judge John Hodgman, International Waters, and Bullseye all recording live episodes at the London Podcast Festival. We'll have fan meetups and we'll be joined on stage by a glittering array of celebrity guests. The London Podcast Festival runs September 22nd through 26th, and you can buy your tickets right now. Just go to MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Dave Holmes. He's a writer, a comedian, a TV host, and he's got a new book out called Party of One, a memoir in 21 songs. Did you know anybody who was adult and gay, like, you know, Mr. Hooper who ran the store or whatever? No, no, I, no, I didn't. Um, when I came out to my family, one of my, uh, my oldest brother's boss uh, was a gay man. And so he, he, like, sent us out for coffee. And it was like it was nice. It was good to talk to somebody who he was probably in his fifties by then, and and uh, you know we didn't have you know I mean it wasn't like a date, right. but I mean uh, but it, it was just it, just to sit and talk to somebody, and 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 the fact that my my older brother who is who is very conservative reacted in that way, just like he probably needs somebody to talk to. Let's let's get that going. It was was that was nice. You didn't know anyone gay for a significant portion of your college career at your college. I really didn't. I really didn't. I find like it wasn't until I got a car around junior year and I started to be able to go into Boston and meet people. And everyone I met was 26 and everyone I met was just out of the closet. Like I, I got to jump on them for a few years. I don't know how. Um, but I, I met a bunch. But yet, yeah, no, in college, no. 
zero. And I want to be clear, like, I, Dave, you're not, you're in your 40s. Yeah, 45. You're not old. I'm, you're, I'm old. We're not talking about 1947 no, here. No, no, uh-uh. Well, I mean, it was my choice, and I think, you know, again, I think it was one last-ditch effort to make myself normal and acceptable. Uh, I went to a very small very conservative Catholic college. Uh, there were like 25, 2,600 people, very small. I mean, homogeneous to the extreme. You know, I don't think that I had these thoughts like active. I think this was all like unconscious or subconscious or whatever. But I just really felt like if I just go there and if I wear the uniform, it's just going to take. You know what I mean? It's just going to – I'm just going to become a normal person, which is a dumb thing for an 18-year-old to do. But whatever. Uh, so I got there and, and, uh, and you know, I had no right to be surprised about this, but there were uh, no out gay people there at all. Now I understand it's a little bit different, which makes me happy. Now it's like I, I hear from some people on Twitter who are there and it's, you know – I mean, there might be like a dozen gay people, <laughs> but that's okay. That's good. That's, you know, 11 more than I had, you know? I feel like you must have really had this idea that you could be uh, a normal, for lack of a better word, a bro. Okay. That you could pass for a bro. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll buy that. I mean, you know, you get to be my age. And I look back at my childhood and I look back at all of the ways that I tried to fit in or, or alter my personality or my persona or whatever. And now it's like now I just have sort of arrived at a place where I'm where I'm happy with myself. And I don't I don't know how much of it affectations that I put on and that just kind of stuck and how much is authentic. But I don't necessarily think that that's unique to me. Yeah, you no, know? I think that's generally true. Right. Yeah. I think I think we all as we grow up kind of try to, you know, cultivate our personalities a little bit. I mean, I'm wearing an Aloha shirt right you now, Dave. You absolutely are. <laughs> With a beard that I have said before, and I will say again, appears to be religiously mandated. <laughs> <laughs> when you were in college, Dave, you wrote a letter to the school paper. Can I you did. tell me what that letter I to did. the school paper was? I was a sophomore or a junior. I kind of don't remember. And I, and, uh, it, I was just fed up. With the fact that, like, it, there just didn't seem to be not only any other gay people, but no nobody addressing it. So I just wrote an anonymous letter to the school newspaper. And I talked about, you know, my experiences as a gay person there and that I was out to a handful of people and, and whatever. And it's, it, it is very self-righteous and very full of, like, of a crazy 19-year-old, you know, 20-year-old I thought it was Catholic. really sweet, Dave. You, oh, reprinted, thanks. you reprinted the book. And I, I reprinted it in really the book. And I, and I just had to brave. read it out loud for the audio book. And I wanted to jump out a window. A lot of people took it the way that it was intended and and for sure knew that it was me who wrote it because I was asking around a lot about it. But I just heard from an old friend of mine who was an RA and he, and he led a discussion about the letter on his hall. And he said, like, to a person, everybody thought it had been written in jest. Like, a lot of people on campus thought that it was some sort of weird prank or something. That and surely... it's not a fun or funny letter. No, it's not at all. It is almost... It is... Un... I mean, the reason you were mortified reading it out loud is because it is one of the most sincere things that I've ever read in really? my life. Oh, oh yeah. It's okay. deeply and profoundly sincere. Yeah, all right. I'll buy that. But yeah, no, it's... Uh, it, yeah, a lot of people thought it was a joke. And again, this is, this is in the 90s. This is not ages and ages ago. This is, this is recent history. People thought, like, no, not here. Not in this group of 2,600 people. For a memoir by a guy who achieved public fame in the 90s, the story of how you got it together to come out to your family uh, is almost too on the nose. Yeah. Should we get into it? Yeah. Is it so a spoiler? You No, 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 no. You were at an Applebee's, dot, dot, dot. I was at an Applebee's. Yeah, I was at a student leadership conference thing in Atlanta, and it was it was deeply, deeply first wave PC. So real, you know, everyone talked in a voice like this and was just super gentle and whatever. Everyone was just talking in like sort of broad, grandiose kind of terms, but it was like, okay, well, what? Like now I'm actually going through something where I could use a little bit of guidance. I'm about to come out to my family, to my very Catholic family, and that's terrifying. Uh, it, 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 the couple friends I managed to, to meet, we went across the street to the Applebee's on, on a hot August night to drink Alabama Slammers. And I, and I remember just venting about how much I needed somebody who had been through that experience to tell me what to do, to just tell me what to do. As I said that, um, the door opened to the, to the patio of the Applebee's and the Indigo Girls walked <laughs> out. You, they gave you some very kind of basic and stern advice, which was a combination of uh, patient and 
well-rehearsed and often used strategy <laughs> to get rid of confused 20-year-old homosexuals uh-huh. that yeah. were bothering them at dinner. <laughs> they just want to—they just want some chicken wings. Just leave them alone. Uh, but they very, you know, firmly, sternly, and simply just told me, just trust yourself. Just trust yourself. And that's a, that is honestly the best advice I've ever been given in my entire life. The only time I've ever done well in my life is when I just relaxed and trusted myself. You and I co-hosted an advice show about a year ago called My Brother, My Brother and Me. That's true. Another Not you, our show. You host a podcast called International Waters. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's a podcast in our podcast network. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the show is uh, a lot of the audience of the show, especially the folks who are writing in to ask questions, are wor- confused and worried post-adolescent nerds. Mm-hmm. And your advice to almost everyone was grow yeah. up and take responsibility for your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Sounds like me. Yeah. I, you know, I love the fact that nerd is no longer a pejorative. Yeah. That's really great. Like that, yeah. I think it does good things for our culture. Um, but I, I also think that uh, nerdliness is a thing that can be luxuriated in a little too much. You know what I mean? I mean, you, you have to go. You have to go your own way in this world. You have to. There are a lot of identities to choose from. There are a lot of teams to join. There are a lot of uniforms to try on. But ultimately, it is the only satisfying thing is to make your own path in this world. And, and it worries me. When I when I see nerd culture become so popular that people start to develop their identity within that world rather than as individuals, uh, the world of gay men is now stratified and and like and and marketed to and people know whether they're an otter or whatever and it's and it's uh, to to derive your identity so fully from something external kind of kind of freaks me out. When you uh, became an adult. When you were out of college and living in New York City mm-hmm. and you were out as gay, uh-huh. you were so good at matching up to your surroundings, at least to the extent that your surroundings required you to do so. Sure. That it must have been hard to figure out what was special about you. Yeah. I think, you know, what's good about growing up terrified that you're never going to find your tribe or there's no like there's no adulthood track for you is that you do always anticipate people's uh people's needs and reactions and alter yourself to them that that's just kind of a thing that you learn how to do what's great is that that is that kind of became my job skill for a while uh what you what people want in a in a tv host is somebody who makes them feel comfortable you know, and takes what is chaos. Live TV is always utter chaos and makes it seem like, nope, this is completely fine. I got you. We're going to have like we're going to enjoy our time together. Um, it's sort of a, a lifetime of being so intensely like having it drummed into me so much that that was my job as a human being actually gave me like my superpower. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, ga- it made me able to do the things that I was able to do. Did you have the problem that a lot of people uh, have when they get on TV? which is you look at yourself on TV and it looks like the most grotesque thing. Oh, my God, yeah. And when I yeah. say a lot of people, I'm including myself in Sure, that. yeah. I mean, you do, you do have to look at, look at and listen to yourself so much. And sometimes I was happy with my performance or whatever, but I was, I was definitely not happy with the way that I looked. And, uh, and luckily, you know, we had, we had like a – we had hair and makeup, you know, and, and wardrobe. And they, they were, you know – they were willing to listen to my concerns about my face and body. And uh, and so, you know, I switched up the hair a lot, like a lot, lot. Um, I My my look varied uh, quite – like every couple months I would look at myself and just be like, no, this has to change. Everything has to change. And uh, so I, I did a lot. Um, uh, clothes-wise, a lot of, lot of baggy uh, guayaberas, a lot, uh, lot of cargo pants, you know, a lot of, lot of let's not let's, – let's hide the body completely. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Dave Holmes. He was a host on MTV. He's a writer at large for Esquire magazine. He's got a new book. It's called Party of One, a memoir in 21 songs. How did being on MTV change your relationship to music? And I should stipulate that you're a really serious and passionate music fan and, and always have been. Yeah. And had been since childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know that it did necessarily. I mean, it's, you know, the case can be made that that the music that came out during my tenure at MTV, certainly the pop music, was much more sort of synthetic than it ever had been before. I don't really care about that. I loved it. I still think a lot of those songs are great songs. And yeah, they, like, all of the kids sort of cultivated an image, but everybody did. Everybody did. The Ramones did. You know, you can't, uh, I mean, yeah, I did get to see kind of the artifice a little bit, but I don't care. That's kind of, that to me is part of the fun. What was the most fun part about getting to see the artifice? Um, I, I always loved the, uh, like the media coaching that I was kind of seeing, you know, because a lot of, a lot of these people were minors. And so they had like, they had people with them to sort of, you know, keep them, uh, keep them on point and like make sure that their answers were, were succinct and wouldn't, uh, like alienate any potential record buyer. Like I was, I was kind of into that whole thing. Like there's, there was kind of a, uh, like a, there was almost some like my fair lady kind of stuff going on there. I mean, you know, we're all trying to sell a thing. Everyone was trying to sell a thing. Who surprised you the most? Um, I think even then I was impressed with the, uh, the work ethic of a young Nick Lachey. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's somebody who I was like, he'll be around forever. Like he will, he'll host Wheel of Fortune or something, which is not to knock his like musical ability. He's got a lovely voice, but it was clear that it was like this is a guy who's gonna. This is a worker. He's like a real pro. Yeah, he's a doer. He's gonna do some stuff. That seems like it was also the quality that you had that you were proud of. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We work hard, us Midwesterners. <laughs> were you out at MTV and were you out on the air? Uh, I was out at MTV, and I, you know, I was not in. Uh, but I never really, like, I never said, I'm gay. I don't know where I would have put that necessarily. Um, but I, I, no, I never really unequivocally said, I'm gay. But I did, you know, I brought male dates to things and whatever. Like, I wasn't hiding. Uh, you know, there there was talk of, like, doing, like, a, a National Coming Out Day special on, on which I would come out. But then it just, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily uh, the subject of a variety special, my sexuality. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't... Like staying in or like... literally like announcing it as part of a TV special. There have to be other options than those two. It seems like it was a conflict between your Midwestern former closeted gay kid tendencies mm-hmm. to want to take care of everyone else and anticipate their needs. Yeah. And thus anticipating the needs of a 12-year-old who might be watching and wanting to come out for that reason. Yeah. Uh, conflicting with your uh, other natural Midwestern tendency, which is... Uh, to try and figure out a way to not make yourself the center of attention. Right. Or right. to not pretend that you deserve to be the center of attention. Yeah, exactly. Well said. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly that's that's it exactly. One of the things that you dealt with um in your career after MTV mm-hmm. was being out and being gay but not being the right kind of gay for oh, I the still entertainment get that. industry. I still get that. You know, it's I don't go out for TV a whole ton anymore, but typically when I do, it's for like, you know, it's for a panel show or something like that. And I've been told more than once, uh, well, for the for the gay guy slot, we need a real gay guy. And uh, and that's not I mean, that's just not naturally who I am. You know, I'm not going to it seems weird to sort of put that on now. Um, so that's just kind of the way it is. I think the the way that I've been able to deal with it, and I think the way we were all kind of figuring out how to deal with it, truly, like, the idea of podcasts has been so important to my career moving forward. Like, now we're hearing all different kinds of perspectives. It's unfiltered. It all comes from the people themselves. You get to be exactly who you are on the microphone at all times. And it's exposing people to all different, to the idea that there are many different kinds of gay guys and and women and many different uh, interpretations of gender, which is really nice. And no development people have to come in and tell you, you know, to snap more or say girlfriend or whatever. You know, in a way, one of your greatest skills as a television host was transparent professionalism thanks even in finishing well i mean it as a you know as a compliment but also as a challenge that i'm sure you had to deal with which is that even in finishing second to jesse camp the Uh reason you finished second to jesse camp is you were the best television host uh thank you but jesse camp was whatever he was Uh so fully (laughs) yeah yeah you know what i mean whatever he probably still is like whatever whatever that thing was that he does but that's a very difficult thing to be every day for 20 years which is to say exactly the thing that other people ask you to be right yeah 
Yeah, it's true. I guess I am still getting my self-worth from the fact that other people are reading or responding to it or, or whatever. But, um, but, but there's a difference between someone responding to something that actually is an authentic expression of yourself mm-hmm. and someone simply uh, responding to the fact that y- you can deliver the thing that they need right. without uh, any hassle. <laughs> right. And one thing that I'm loving about having this book out is I'm hearing from readers that I've put into words something that they felt and never were able to, like, verbalize. And that makes me very, very happy because I know that feeling. I I know, like, I know the feeling of feeling strange and feeling alone. And then in a song or a book or something, just seeing something of yourself that you just never seen reflected back at you before. And that's – it's still – it, it's still a thrill to read a line or to hear a song or whatever that's just like, that is that is me. That's me. I've always wanted to say that, but I didn't know what the words were. You write a list uh, in your book yeah. of uh, guys who made you gay. Yes. One of them is Huey Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. That's in some ways an unconventional choice. I don't think so. Really? No, I don't think so. That He's all man. Well, really there's is. no doubt that he's all man. Yeah. And he's not, that's the thing. He's like, he's not like a pretty boy. He, he, he arrived fully formed, you know, like I feel like he was in his thirties by the time the, the news broke out. Um, but I mean, you know, just like, just, just confident and cool and, and like cleft chinned and hairy chested and just, yeah. I mean, he was, yeah, no, I, I really love him. He really did something to me. Also David Lee Roth, right? Yeah. David Lee Roth. <laughs> David Lee Roth. I mean, so he's like, he's a fling. He's a summer fling. <laughs> I would hope that you wouldn't be looking to settle down with David no, Lee Roth. No, 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 no. He's just yeah, he's just a bit of fun over the summer. Hey, Dave, what's Jesse Camp really like? Uh, he was really like that all the time. He really was like that all the time. Yeah. Uh, do you do you guys hang out now? I have not seen him in a very long time. No, no. I feel like there's a third part of this question that I'm forgetting. Um, oh, are maybe. you mad that you lost yeah. him? No, no. No, it's it was for the best. Everything worked out exactly the way it should have. Dave, it's just it's always great to get to talk to you. I'm so uh, I'm so grateful for your book and Thank you. uh, thanks for being a friend. Thanks, thank you for being a friend, Jesse Thorne. Dave Holmes, super funny, absolutely charming, and completely Dave Holmesy new memoir is called Party of One: A Memoir in Twenty One Songs. Every week on Bullseye, we close with a recommendation from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. I like sports a lot, but I didn't really love the Olympics. I mean, I didn't really love the Olympics for all the normal reasons that some dumb American guy who likes sports doesn't love them. Uh, Somebody saw this on Twitter that there are sports for people who hate sports, and I get that. I mean, there are a ton of reasons not to love the Olympics, especially on TV. The human interest stories, those Weird tape delays, the copyright lawsuits, the boondoggle stadiums, the doping, that stupid swelling music with the dumb hyperbolic narration. All those reasons are valid. So I didn't really hate the Olympics. But then I met an Olympian. It's kind of a crazy thing. Her name is Donna. She called into my podcast. She called in to say that she listens to us while she trains and she just qualified for the Olympics. And when I heard the call, it didn't even seem real. Like, Olympic athletes are symbols, not people. They're like presidents. It was like that time Obama said his favorite show was The Wire. But if I created The Wire? But anyway, Donna. Donna's Canadian. She was an athlete in high school, a little bit, but she quit because she was more punk rock than jock. Then one day, when she was all grown up, she was on a ranch, and her friend asked her if she wanted to try training to be a modern pentathlete. That, by the way, if you don't know, is running, shooting, swimming, fencing, and riding. 
And Donna liked the idea of exercising and riding horses. And who doesn't want to play with swords and laser guns? And so she said yes. Donna wasn't a jock. She wasn't Michael Phelps training every day of her life. She was a normal person, an adult in graduate school, going cycling with her boyfriend, paying her own way to fencing camp. Really, fencing camp, which is a summer camp for fencers, where she was the only job-having adult. Donna's a modest person who works really hard, and she's gifted too, but not in some superhuman way, not like Usain Bolt or whatever. She's focused. She isn't one of those people who isn't happy unless she wins. She just cares about doing something right, trying as hard as she can, believing in something. I went to London to see her compete. I was sitting there in the grandstand with my co-host Jordan and Donna's best friend. We were in this stadium that was overflowing with people who were tingling. And I don't know if these people were modern pentathlon fans. I mean, they were mostly probably people who couldn't get tickets to basketball or whatever. But 10,000 people all there together just to celebrate what a person can do, it's an amazing feeling. And you know, the stakes are high. It's not just the medals. Modern pentathlon is actually kind of a scary sport. You have to ride a horse you've never ridden before and get it to jump, and you never know how that's going to go. You could be the greatest rider in history, and that horse bucks, and you fall off and get trampled and die. Like, actually die. Or you could just fail. Totally fail. No fault of your own. A horse having a bad day, and you fail in front of the world. It's scary. And I was sitting there in the stands and looking at these women, and they were people just like me. Not Wheaties box models. Not even NCAA stars with college scholarships. Just people who believed that they should give their all. People who believe they should take everything they had and share it with the world. English women celebrating their home. Women from tiny countries who just wanted to show the world that they count. A woman from Egypt who ran the two miles in her hijab. And when my friend Donna came through the gates of the stadium, struggling to separate from the pack, pushing herself as far as she could go, I couldn't contain my tears. I'm pretty close to crying right now. My heart is so full. This lady in grad school who just believes in what sport can be, in what she can be and what you can be and, and I can be, a decent person who works hard, there with the whole world. And I was just so proud of people. I hope you'll look for Donna in Rio. I don't know if it's on TV or what. It's modern pentathlon. When you watch, just remember that for every Gabby Douglas or Michael Phelps, there's 10 or 12 folks like Donna. Folks who just want to bring people together around something beautiful. Who just want to share what they have. That's my outcha. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Dan Gallucci. Our production assistant, Christian Duenas, known as Chrissy Chris. Our senior producer, Colin Soup Anderson. Our interstitial music provided to us by Dan Wally, known popularly as DJW. He actually has a compilation on Bandcamp of music that he's made for this show, if you want to listen to it in your free time. Thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. Hey, you know, Bullseye isn't the end-all, be-all of popular culture. There's more available to you in podcast form. On our sister show, Pop Rocket, it's a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. It's hosted by comedian Guy Branham, who is here with me, along with a very special and beautiful guest. Hey, Guy Branham, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? This week we're talking about Stranger Things on Netflix and role-playing games. And we've got real-life NPR royalty, Linda Holmes. Hi, Guy. Hey, you two. They're fun, right? Pop Rocket. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 